It is said that actions speak a thousand words. In our passage before us today, the story of a, of a woman who, who wets the feet of Jesus with her tears. That main character, this unknown woman from that city where Jesus is visiting, this woman in this whole account doesn't speak a single recorded word. Not one. But her actions do indeed speak a thousand words. So for our scripture reading this morning, we're going to... Hopefully you can follow along as I read our passage that we will, by God's grace, unpack the entirety of this passage. So we need to get started. Luke chapter 7, verse 35. Let these words sink in. This is the word of the living God. Verse 35 of Luke 7. Yet wisdom is vindicated by all her children. Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him, and the him there is Jesus, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner, and when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say, I like this, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, "Uh, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but... She, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven forgiven. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sin? Sins. And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go. Go in peace. Indeed, God's wisdom in salvation is vindicated by her children. This child, this woman, vindicates the power 
of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Does it not? Children who are born of God love God. You see, there is a connection. There is a connection between forgiveness from Jesus and love for Jesus. There's a connection there. And that's a connection that we mean to explore uh, in this wonderful passage, this wonderful story that we're going to break down into three basic sections as we try to enter into this story and use our imaginations to enter into it and then hopefully reflect on some implications for our lives. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at this under three basic sections. Number one, in verses 36 through 39, the sinner approaches. The sinner approaches. Verse 36, Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. So Jesus is traveling around preaching, and he's in a certain city, and um, a Pharisee, a teacher of the law named Simon, hears that he's in town and offers a formal invitation to come over to a more formal sort of dinner at, in the evening to dine with him and some guests. So Simon apparently is, has a fairly large house. He probably is quite wealthy. This is a formal invitation, a formal meal. And, and we're, la- we're, we're left to ask a little bit, why, why is this Pharisee inviting Jesus over to his house to eat and to drink? Because we're not sure of his motivation here in this passage of inviting Jesus. I, I'm sure Simon was perhaps curious about Jesus, um, but there are some clues in this passage that Simon the Pharisee's motivation was not above board in this passage. And that perhaps Simon is actually trying to gather information at this point in the ministry of Jesus by which to bring an accusation against him. In fact, uh, one expositor that I like, Kent Hughes, argues that, quotes, Simon has cold contempt for Christ. I think that's a little much, but I do think that there's, uh, his motives aren't uh, above board. You see, let me tell you why I believe that, and this will help us. When a, when a guest, for a formal invitation for a meal, when a guest arrives for the meal, typically the servant, the the slave, the servant would, would, would greet the guest, would remove the sandals of the, uh, of the guest, would gird on the, a towel and would kneel down and would wash the feet of the guest of honor, right? The guest who was being invited and wash that guest's feet so that the dirt and the stink would be removed before entering this, yeah, open air, but still a banquet room sort of in the premises of that house, so the feet of the guests would be washed, and then a towel would be, right? The towel would be used that was around the waist, hooked on like an implement, like a screwdriver, but this is the job of washing feet. So I got my towel, would wipe, and, uh, wipe off the feet of the guest, and then typically the guest's head would be anointed with olive oil. And sometimes even if, if the, the host was on his or her A-game, would uh, also use some various spices for scent. After this preparation, the guests would then enter that banquet hall and then finally would be greeted by the individual, in this case, Simon the Pharisee, who would offer the formal invitation and would, uh, would greet and would greet with a kiss on the cheek. A friendly greeting, a kiss on the head, a kiss on the cheek. And then they would recline and they would begin the meal together. Now, everyone look up here. Should have had a picture probably, but you have to use your imagination. In that, the table in that day, are you ready, would be shaped like a horseshoe. Okay? Table, table, table. And the table would only be about a foot off the ground. And in the, in the square 
in the middle of that table, there would be a, a little table with all the food there. And so everybody, just picture it on that horseshoe table, they would, they would be like some decorations, some flowers, there would be some, some nice pillows that are all embroidered. If they had money, they would look really nice. And the pillows would be good because they would lie down. They would recline because it was a long meal of conversation. And they'd lay, typically if you're right-handed, they would lay with their head towards the middle of the square where the food is, laying on their left elbow with their feet out, Obviously, keep the feet away from the food, away from the periphery, right? So you can see the feet of all the guests poked out around the side. And your left hand you're laying there, the food's there. You got your right hand freed up to grab the food, to eat, to talk to everybody. If they want to talk to the guy next to you, behind you, you got to lean back on their breast. So they're getting ready to recline at the table. That is the scene. And you just see the, the darkness and the candlelight and this has dinner has begun and the wine diluted with honey would be served and a dinner would be served probably three courses and then into that scene as the sun is going down and the conversation is going something extraordinary happens verse 37 and there was a woman in the city who was a sinner And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. Stop there. That night, a woman, an unnamed woman, hears a rumor that Jesus is here in this city. And he is dining at that big old house up the street, the house of Simon the Pharisee, and her heart begins to beat quickly. And she begins to think, okay, she makes her way towards the house. How can she maybe put the, over her head, conceal her well-known identity in that city and get into that home? Because it's interesting that in that culture, the well-to-do and their banquet halls in that, open air, air, in that open area where the banquet was probably being held, in those days, historians tell us that the doors, listen to this, the doors were often left open so that some people in the town not invited to the meal could even stand around. As one has said, one scholar quotes, the perimeter of the room and listen in on the dialogue, end quotes. Or as another scholar said, quotes, an uninvited guest could enter, sit by the walls, and hear the conversation, end quotes. And also, after the meal, sometimes the poor among them would snatch up some of the leftovers. Do you get the, the, the feel of the passage? Now, I want you to know a couple of things about this woman. Number one, the text says that she was a sinner. Now, when you hear that, I don't want you to say this to yourself, I, we're, we're all sinners, theologic, we're all sinners. Yes, that's true, but this text seems to indicate that she was a well-recognized sinner within the city. Now, we don't know exactly what her sin was, but more than likely, it was not good. A woman of the night, probably a prostitute. We don't know for certain, but most scholars agree with that. But you should know something else about this woman. In the past, she had met Jesus. Now, I don't think she had met him personally yet. But she had met Jesus spiritually. She had heard the the gospel of the kingdom that was being preached just like that Gentile centurion who hadn't met Jesus and knew he was unworthy and Jesus was worthy. The word was on the street and this message was getting out. And this woman had, had seen her sin, had seen Jesus, whether she met him yet or not, and she had been passed out of death and into life. And she wanted to see Jesus who had freed her from her sin. And she was not going to be stopped. She was enamored with Jesus. She must see him. And so I can imagine her in the darkness of the night, maybe concealing her identity with her cloak, but she's entering through that open door, making her way, 
and then she decides in that banquet hall to go for it. And she has an alabaster vial of perfume probably hanging around her neck, and she makes her way towards Jesus. And that vial that held that perfume was probably made of stone, handcrafted out of stone or glass, probably Egyptian in origin, because as one has said, quotes, alabaster is an expensive kind of marble quarried in Egypt, indicating that the perfume was invaluable, in quotes. Look what happens next. Verse 38, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. So this woman in that darkness with the candles lit, you see all the people around that table and their feet are poking out, and she's standing behind alongside the feet of our Lord Jesus Christ. Can you see it? She stands at his feet, and at this point, she just can't help herself. She's overcome with joy. She's overcome with mournful joy. Right, Christian? She's overcome by the presence of Jesus, and she begins to weep. And it's not... this word is not a tear trickling down the corner of her cheek. This is weeping. Just think of, you know, ladies having your makeup on and then just just weeping and it gets all, right? She would be a mess right now. You can see her getting down on her knees. The table's about a foot off the ground, weeping on the feet of Jesus. The text literally says, are you ready, that she was raining, raining tears upon his feet. But then there's a cascade of events that takes place. And the the tense of the Greek verbs here are one that show that um, things are happening kind of over and over again, but they're also going from event to event to event, and they're connected consecutively. In fact, She was raining tears on his feet, and that leads to something else that leads to something else that leads to something else. That's what's happening here. So let's think about this. So so she rains tears on the feet of Jesus, and she's crying on his feet, and then she notices something about his feet. She notices that her, her tears are forming white lines and that the feet of Jesus are dirty and have not been cleansed. The guest of honor and his feet are dirty? One worthy of our respect, one worthy of such love, his feet are dirty. She thinks it's unthinkable. That's unthinkable. And so she does the unthinkable. She doesn't think about the unthinkable. She does the unthinkable in that culture. She lets down her hair. And it doesn't shock anybody here, but in that culture, it was shocking. She lets down her glory. In that culture, respectable women just didn't do that in those days in that culture. For a Jewish woman to let down her hair, it was considered, as one has said, quotes, indecent, even immoral, in quotes. In fact, as bizarre as this sounds, I'm sorry it's bizarre to us, as bizarre as this sounds, historians in that day like Josephus, etc., note that such an action of a woman letting down her hair in later times in Jewish history could bring grounds for divorce. But, she, but his feet are dirty. And her tears are washing his feet. And so in, on her knees, in humility, seeing that, that his feet need to be washed and not finding a towel anywhere, her hair, her glory, becomes a towel for the feet of Jesus. And she wipes off the dirt and the stink with her hair with her glory. And her hair becomes a towel for Jesus, a towel that was not offered 
by Simon the Pharisee. And of course, things lead to other things. Her, the, his feet were cleansed, and she begins over and over, a very emphatic word. She begins kissing his feet repeatedly, a sign of certainly respect in that culture and gratitude. Kissing the feet of Jesus over and over again, just with a heart that's pouring out of absolute affection and love for our Lord Jesus Christ. No kiss on the cheek, but multiple kisses on the feet by this woman. And then she takes the alabaster vial from Egypt, quite valuable. She breaks the vial and she anoints his feet with myrrh, pouring out upon his feet this valuable perfume. So much guilt for whatever her sin was, a well-known sinner, rejected by that culture, rejected by her family, rejected by, this, by the leaders in Israel. But all of that guilt, the burden of that guilt was gone. Her shame was gone. It had been lifted, and she wept. And then she devoted her womanly glory to the glory of Jesus as a servant. And she adored Jesus and kissed his feet over and over and over again. Adoring Jesus, longing for Jesus, humbled before Jesus, respecting Jesus, loving Jesus. She didn't care what anybody else thought or the consequences of her action. She loved Jesus. And consider our Lord Jesus Christ. Have you thought about him lately? Did he push her away? You don't know what this looks like. Did he condemn her? Did he judge her? No, no, he smiled, I'm sure. Maybe he took a little glance at Simon. He freely received her gratitude, even her worship. Now, the guests didn't take it like Jesus. The guests were thinking certain things. What would you be thinking? Well, we know what they're thinking because the text goes there in verse 39. Look at verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. So, the, now, Simon doesn't have the guts to say this out loud. He just thinks this. This is not something he actually said. But she said, I've got my evidence against Jesus. If he is who people are saying he is, a great prophet, or even the promised Messiah, surely he would know about the well-known sinner, who she was, who this woman was who was touching him like this, letting down her hair. It's shameful, this well-known sinner. He would send her away if he knew who he was. He would not associate with sinners and become unclean and condemn himself. And Simon is just outright offended at this. And he's very, very angry. He's smug about it. And I think he's gathering information. I think he wants to bring an accusation against the Son of Man. He doesn't say this out loud, but he says this to himself. And you know what? Jesus knows all about it. We'll get to that. But what's interesting to me is Jesus and his interactions with Simon the Pharisee. Yeah, I'll come to your house. I mean, Jesus is not offended by Simon. Jesus doesn't defend himself. Jesus goes to the heart of Simon the Pharisee. Jesus is there for Simon, probably more than for that woman. That's why he went. Did you realize that? He, he went for Simon, for the heart of Simon, to seek and to save the lost. Ironically, the biggest sinner in this story is not the woman, but Simon. And his self-righteousness and his smugness and his, and his unbelief flowing from pride. I don't have sin. I don't need Jesus. And so we've seen the sinner, right, enter in. And now we're going to get, secondly, to the significance of this whole incredible event. Take a look at verse 40 as we look at, and you can pick your, the, the word that you want there, the significance 
I would pr- think a better word might be a better word might be argued. The significance argued. Look at verse 40. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I love this. I have something to say to you. And he replied, Say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. Okay, so Jesus tells a story, a parable. And in the story, you have two debtors. One debtor and a denarii is about one one day of work wage. So 500 days of work, about year and a half of debt. It's a significant debt. The other one, oh, still significant, 50 denarii, so about a month and a half of wages. But here's the issue. The issue is this. They both can't pay. They both can't pay. And then something shocking happens. Both the one that owes 500 and the one that owes 50 both have that debt graciously canceled, graciously wiped out, graciously forgiven. I mean, that would be an exciting day if Wells Fargo, if you have a house debt, Wells Fargo calls you up and wipes your debt completely clean. That's a, that's a good day. I'd be quite excited about that. They graciously have their debt canceled. And that Greek word for for having their debt canceled is the same word Paul uses for forgiveness. It's graciously forgiven. And the text says, you know what? And, and why, did, why does it have to talk about graciously forgiven? Because the text says they can't pay their debt. They're unable to pay their debt. Let's be clear in this story. The money lender is God. The woman in the story is, is the one that, you know, by everybody else would say she's the greater sinner. We know better. But for the sake of the parable, Jesus is going to argue according to what the setting is. Yeah, she's the 500 old, and Simon, you're the 50. And, and don't read, it, read into the details of this. Parables are meant to make one point, one singular point, and he wants to tease this out of the heart of of the Pharisee. He's lovingly digging into his heart and notice how he does it. He says this, when they were unable to repay, unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. Then he asked the question to Simon, so which one of them will love him more? Oh, poor Simon. He's between a rock and a hard place. He's got all these witnesses that all know the answer. And the Greek text is such is that he's, oh, he's hesitating. I really think he's saying, I suppose, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. I'm conceding this point (laughs) because I'm going to look really bad if I don't. And he said to him, and Jesus is so nice, you have judged correctly. Very generous towards Simon, to bring the truth home to him. And then Jesus gets very direct indeed to Simon the Pharisee in verses 44 through 46. I don't do this very often, but I'm going to do a literal translation of the Greek text so you can feel the emphasis of Christ in this passage. It doesn't come through in the English. So I'm going to just, this is my own translation, I'll read it. And turning to the woman... To Simon, he said, do you see this woman? I entered your house. Water to me upon my feet you did not give. But she with tears rained upon my feet. And with her hair she was wiping again and again. Kisses to me you did not give. But she, from which time that I came in, she has not ceased kissing over and over again my feet. Olive oil to my head you did not anoint. But she, with myrrh, was anointing my feet. Simon, you didn't even show me common courtesy. You're not interested in me. 
You have no heart for me. You don't even bother to appoint someone to wash my feet, to dry my feet off. You didn't give me a kiss on the cheek. There's no kiss of friendship here or greeting. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil as you would have other guests of honor. But this woman is different. This woman loves me. She honors me. She's filled with gratitude. Simon, do you see what she did with her hair? Simon, do you see the difference between your love for me and her love for me, even as a religious leader? Simon, do you see your heart towards me? Cold and discourteous, but the woman with lavish love and humble gratitude and fearless courage. I don't care what people think. I must see Jesus. And the difference between these two people is the point of this entire passage. And we come to it in verse 47. I want you, if you're getting lost, I want you to re-engage right now. Verse 47. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Now notice that Jesus says her sins, I love this, her sins, sins plural, which are many, have been forgiven. That's amazing. All of them. Many of them. All of her sins have been forgiven. Doesn't argue the point whether she's a great sinner or not. All have been forgiven. They had, now listen, this is so important. Hang with me. Her sins have been forgiven. That is in what's called the perfect tense. Sometime in the past, before this story, her sins have been forgiven with current relevance right now at the time of the story. Sometime in the past, she had met Jesus. She had trusted Jesus. Her sins have been forgiven. And as evidence of her forgiveness, she loves Jesus so much. That's the order of salvation. Listen carefully. It's not try to, oh, I got to love God, love God, love God, love others, love others, love others, do, 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 and maybe finally I'll work enough and Jesus will forgive me. No, that is not the order of this text. We love because of forgiveness. We're not forgiven because of our love. They both can't pay the debt. They can't. And the order is right there in the text if you're not convinced at the end of verse 47. What? If you're forgiven little in the past, what's the result? You love little. If you're forgiven much in the past, what's the result now? You love much. You see the text? If you're forgiven much, the result of great sense of forgiveness is a great love for Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ. What a passage. We still have time. First, the sinner approached Jesus. Then the significance was argued by Jesus or explained by Jesus, if that's nicer. And finally, notice, and believe it or not, it gets even better. The third stage of this story, the salvation announced. The sinner approached, the significance argued, the salvation announced in verses 48 through 50. Verse 48 and, he said, and uh, then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Again, perfect tense. I believe this is what's happening. That she is, I don't think she's met Jesus in the past physically, but she's come to Jesus in the past through his gospel. And now she's excited to meet him and love on him. And, and Jesus gets to meet her and he's just assuring this woman of her standing in her state before God. Again, the perfect tense. Jesus is reminding her. Jesus is assuring her. I think for the first time saying to her face to face what she already has 
knows in her heart of hearts, he's reassuring her, all of those sins have been forgiven. It is finished. Whatever your name is, I don't know her name. It is finished. It's so incredible for that woman to hear that. And it's incredible for me to think that my salvation is in the past, but I'm now, I can be at the feet of Jesus. And he still, today through his word, looks me in the eye and tells me, it's going to be okay. Son, Jeff, your sins, they have all been forgiven. You are in the state, a perfect tense, it's a state, it's a wholeness. You are in the state of forgiveness. You are locked in forever in forgiveness. I can't imagine the look on this woman's face. And the, I mean, if she was crying before, now what is it like? But Luke doesn't highlight her response anymore, her tears or anything like that. He turns to his main point here, those who do not believe. The guests, Simon, us, perhaps. Look at the response of the guests in verse 49. Well, they're shocked at what Jesus said. Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. What? So they're, they're thinking theological thoughts. They're friends of a Pharisee after all. And they're like, this is wrong. And they're not going to say this out loud to this guy. I mean, who's going to mess with this guy? So they say it to themselves again. And here's what they say in verse 49. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? Now here's the point. Now listen very carefully. Luke wants us to meditate on the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. There was a rumor going around all of Israel that Jesus was a great prophet. Some were even saying that he is the promised Messiah of old. Some knew that he was even more. And Luke has a very high Christology, and he wants us to know and to embrace who Jesus is. That Jesus is the one who speaks in verse 48. Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. It's not that as if Jesus is his prophet and says, you know, I'm representing God here, um, I'm God's agent of forgiveness. I'm a prophet who knows God's mind. I'm pronouncing a message from God that he, God, has forgiven you. No, his remarks, according to the scholars, commenting on the Greek text, and I agree wholeheartedly, Christ's comments are very direct. He does not say, the Lord says you're forgiven, or the Lord will forgive you. He says, I say to you. And it's a direct expression of the authority of Jesus Christ to forgive sins. And those seated around the table, they're not, they get it. We may not get it, it's sad, but they got it. Who is this? who's saying that he can forgive sins. And they're, and they're recognizing this is blasphemous. So Jesus is unpacking who he is. He's more than a prophet. Like John the Baptist was more than a prophet. He was the messenger of our Lord Jesus Christ announcing the coming one. And so Jesus is more than a prophet. But he's not a messenger. He is God incarnate. He is Daniel's divine son of man. And he has come. And he has the authority to grant forgiveness by the word of his power. (laughs) Certainly, Jesus demonstrates it right here. He knows what this guy is thinking. He knows what they're thinking. And he knows what the woman is thinking. And he knows this woman. He is the one who knows what they've been saying to themselves. As one has said, he is the God-man, clothed with the authority to forgive sin. So Luke wants us to get us thinking about the divine Savior here, but he wants more than that. Not just the exalted person of Christ, but the exalted work of Christ in verse 50. Because he's announcing a glorious salvation in the person and work of Jesus. Okay. Verse 50. He moves on to the work. He says in verse 50, And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Did did her loving over the years and working and working and working for God lead to her 
salvation and her peace of God? No. Faith alone in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ saves sinners. True faith leads to the forgiveness of sins. Again, it's perfect tense right here again. Your faith has saved you. It's, she has been placed in the past in an ongoing state of forgiveness. An ongoing state of forgiveness means you're in an ongoing state of salvation. And if you're in an ongoing state of forgiveness, because her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, when your sins are gone, removed as far as the east is from the west, then your sin no longer separates you from God. And your sin being removed in forgiveness means God is can be reconciled to you. You can be brought near to God. You can The enmity and anger of God against you because of your sin is gone. You're brought near to God in His presence. Now, in His presence in fellowship, in love, in family because your sin is gone. And that is why Jesus can say, Go! You are at peace with God. Shalom, peace. Cease fire because her sins are gone. This is a state a state of peace. Peace with God. Reconciled to God. So go. Go, Christian. You're in this state. Go into the world in the state of peace. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. But what about Simon? Is he in this verse? Did he have faith? Was he forgiven? Was he saved? Could he go in peace? What about you? What about you? The sinner approached, the the significance argued, the salvation announced. And as we prepare in the next few minutes... For the Lord's table, we're going to press two of these points home by the Lord's grace and meditate on the majesty of forgiveness. This blew me away, and I hope by God's grace you are reset in the gospel here today. Number one, the value of forgiveness The value of forgiveness. Now, let me just try not to hear this as a cliche by the Spirit. God's forgiveness of all of your sins is the most valuable commodity in all of the universe. Why? Because of what it means to us for all eternity and because of what it cost God Himself. First, what did it cost God? Look at the the word in verse 42. It's the idea of he graciously forgave their debt. That's the idea, right, of paying a debt. Because of our sin and our many violations of God's law, we are in the whole infinity so deep and buried in sin, in debt to God. And we're unable, of course, to pay it But here's the the problem. It must be paid. And this is the value of our forgiveness. Understand that we're redeemed of this debt. But the debt was paid by God Himself. It must be paid. God Himself took the burden of our debt. This is the glory of forgiveness. Now listen, I want you to, like Paul writing about In the book of Philemon, running about his runaway slave Onesimus, Paul says to Philemon, if he wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge it to my account, I will repay. That's what God does for us. He takes on the burden of our debt. God himself takes our debt. And so think of it. This woman, this great sinner, is weeping on the feet of Jesus out of joy for forgiveness. Jesus is laying there. I don't know what he's thinking. Does he realize that he is going to assume her debt? He does. That Jesus is the one 
who in her stead will hang upon the bloody tree, naked, full of her shame, full of her sin, bearing in his own body the just penalty for this woman's sin, all of them on that cross of Calvary. In her place condemned he stood. Jesus paid our debt, whether it's 500, 5,000, or five. We cannot pay it back to God. God himself with his own right arm, must redeem us. And he did in the person of the God-man who laid there reclined upon the table and hung there dying upon the tree. And Jesus paid it all. He finished your debt. I mean, listen to Paul just go off on this in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. Having forgiven us all of our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. Let's just go out and sin, shall we? This is great. Listen to me today. You are not too far gone. No one is. The worst sinners this world can produce, if they will see it by God's grace and cast their hope upon Jesus, their, their faith will save them because it's connected and tethers them to the finished work of Christ. Go. Brother, sister, go. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, it's ugly. Go. Go in a state of peace. Is that valuable? Is there anything more valuable than that? To be in a state where your sins are forgiven? To be in a finished state of forgiven and saved at peace with God? Having 20 acres and a beautiful home out in the country? I, I would love that, actually. It's nothing compared to forgiveness. Having $5 million in retirement so you can travel in a few years? It's nothing compared to forgiveness. Having everything this world can offer you, being a movie star, a famous one with $250 million in the bank account, that is nothing compared to forgiveness. Ask Johnny Depp if money brings happiness. Brothers and sisters, from this text, consider the infinite value of the forgiveness of all of your sins. There is therefore, brothers and sisters, Romans 8.1, now, right now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we have one minute now we talk about finally, and hang on and put your seatbelt on. We would not be faithful to the text if we don't end on this point. The fruit of forgiveness. Great forgiveness leads to great love. It is faith alone in what Jesus did in his death, the resurrection in your place that saves you. That's why Jesus said your faith has saved you to the woman. But listen, if you have been forgiven your sins, if you have felt the burden of your sin and your shame, and you know it's just for God to condemn you forever in a place called hell, but then you know that there is a Savior who is greater than all your sins. It's not this Savior or that Savior. It's certainly not this Savior. It's Jesus. And you've cast your hope upon Him. And He said to you, your sins are forgiven. And He said to you, go in peace. If you have a sense of that, of the depth of your sin and the glory of Christ and His forgiveness, then you will love Jesus. In fact, in fact, having a sense of forgiveness is the fuel for your love for Jesus. It fuels it. The woman and her outpouring of love for Christ was the effect of forgiveness, not uh, it was the result of her forgiveness. Simon the Pharisee, he's just he's dishonoring Christ. He didn't feel his need for Jesus. He has no concept of forgiveness, no sense of debt to Christ. He doesn't love him at all. In fact, he dishonors Christ. 
Now, believer, listen, the only way to pursue holiness, the only way to produce the fruit of love is to understand, is to grasp, is to sense, is to grow in our understanding of the full and free forgiveness through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that, a growth of a sense of our forgiveness, will grow us in our love for Christ. When Jesus says, go in peace, where does she go? Our time is up. Where does she go? Listen, do you think she went back to prostitution? When Jesus says to you, believer, go in peace, where do you go? One pastor told it this way in an illustration. I'm just going to take the time to do this, sorry. We are the bride of Christ. If my bride, she's in jail, I hope not, but I pay the whatever it's called, I forgot, the ransom, we'll call it that, even that's old school terms, to get her out, to free her, to free her to run into the arms of another man. Great forgiveness is great love. That's the whole gospel. Faith alone, here's the theology in one sentence. Faith alone in Christ forgives us of our sin so that we have peace with God resulting in love for Christ. So we say as believers, forgive us, Lord, don't we? I want to love more like this woman loved. Forgive me, Lord, for my apathy. And you say, what do I do about it? I'll tell you what you do about it. See the depth of your sin and remember what you are ransomed from and behold the glories of Christ and your forgiveness and you will grow in your love for our Lord Jesus Christ. You will. Reflect on your present tense, perfect, final state of forgiveness And I'm telling you, be blown away by it. Hallelujah, what a Savior. How can we sin so easily against His love? That's my question. It's the question of this text. And as we love God and are changed in the image to love others, the wisdom of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ will be vindicated by her children, for they will know we are Christians by our love. Brothers and sisters, talk is cheap when it comes to love for Jesus. Like the woman who wet Jesus' feet with her tears, actions and deeds speak a thousand words.